Hey everybody, welcome to the October 24th edition of Cascadian Views. I've got Chris with me here right now. We may be joined by JJ and Dan in a little bit. Um, JJ's running into some technical issues and Dan's finishing up, you know, family shopping with a kid and all that. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. We'll kind of dive right into it. The first and biggest thing, I, I think, as we head into the last week and a half of this presidential race, is that approximately a third of the, the voting electorate has already voted. Um, we, we now have early voting numbers from typically about a week uh, in most states. Some states were longer, but uh, the numbers are just in fucking incredible. Chris, you said you have them up right now. Yeah, so um, this is the uh, U.S. Elections Project, and maybe we can share the URL for that later, but I think it's pretty easy to find. So as of now, total early votes are 56.567 million, which represents 41% of the total turnout in 2016. Jesus. Turnout may be higher this time, but that is a significant chunk of votes. That is incredible. Incredible. Um, you mentioned turnout potentially being higher. Uh, in the group, we talked a little bit about 538's new turnout projections, and they're looking to, uh, to really skyrocket. I mean, smashing the record for, for voters in a U.S. election. Uh, Dan made the point in the group that uh, the winner of this contest will have more votes than were cast by everybody in like the the 1992 Clinton election. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I noted is that there's been a particular increase in uh, the number of young people early voting, people 18 to, to 24. Um, yeah, I've seen some of those numbers today. Yeah, it's it's up like you know 800 a thousand percent in some of these swing states. Um, there's a big caveat to that is we don't know how much that is people who were election day voters who are now moving to early votes but uh if, if those votes are new votes that's incredible yeah yeah and some of the states too like if you look at some of the individual states it's pretty amazing like texas is already at 76 percent of its 2016 vote total they've got almost seven million people having voted yeah. in texas <laughs> Um, Florida's at the map. up over 5 million. Yeah, Florida's at 55% of 2016. North Carolina's at 62% of 2016. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing. Montana is at two-thirds of their 2016 <laughs> turnout already yeah. before the election has even started. Uh, I mean, in Montana's case, that is 67 people, but... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the West Coast is is not nearly as high, I'm noticing, um, in terms of the others. And I think that's because we all vote by mail already. So this is just kind of the normal pace of votes for us out here. Uh, Washington's at 55%, Oregon's at 45%, California's at 44%. All three of those states primarily vote by mail, uh, in Oregon's case, only by mail. Uh, in Washington's case, functionally only by mail. Uh, so it's not nearly as new or unusual of a thing, I think, for us out here. Do you see Idaho's numbers, though? 
Uh, or the Gulf states, Mississippi and Alabama in particular. Yeah, well, was it Mississippi? I know some of these states have like, you know, unless you are actually dying and cannot leave your home, <laughs> there's no good reason to vote early. Well, I mean, you say that, but Pennsylvania is one of those states, and they're up at 25% turnout. Alabama's yeah. down at, you know, 7%. Mississippi's at 5%. Yeah, that is pretty notable. Yeah. Do you anticipate the um, the turnout share being up as high as uh, as five thirty eight does? Do you think that's a good estimate? I think it is, especially since we know a lot of the Republicans are potentially holding off for election day, but. Also, I just see, I mean, you've probably seen this too on your social media. There's just such a different buzz around voting and checking and making sure friends and family are voting. And oh, there's so cow. much. I see JJ. Yeah. <laughs> we can see him, but not <laughs> That was really funny. I wasn't expecting to see that when I turned the Skype window back on. Uh all right, <laughs> let's minimize that so I'm not distracted. Uh, yeah, the the other thing I was noticing is that 538 has just ever so slightly in an upshot on the over on that number. The uh, the range of possible outcomes that are, are higher than their projected 154 is just a little bit larger um, by about half a million votes or so. So I, I not only think it's a good prediction but i i think if he took the over it wouldn't really be a bad bet either yeah it's interesting and i mean i guess the um allah willing the the, the general theory is that much higher turnout levels favor democrats and hopefully yeah. it's a bunch of uh conservative voters who would not have otherwise shown up who are showing up the the flip side to that is, um, you know, Trump has made a real play to get out um, kind of the Bernie strategy, except, you know, done by a dick face and, and not Bernie, um, <laughs> but of turning out non-traditional voters, of getting people who don't normally go to the polls to go to the polls. Uh, is there any concern at all that higher voting numbers, especially from non-traditional voters, favors the Trump campaign? I mean, yes, <laughs> I have had some, some some concern about that, although I haven't seen any analysis indicating that there's really a sign that this is going on. Mm -hmm. The partisan edge in the early vote makes me kind of question whether or not he's been successful at that. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of, let's just look at requested mail ballots. Um, Democrats have 45% of all ballots requested. Republicans only have 25%. Um, there's 30% that's, that's, you know, independent, no party affiliation, but, uh, the same kind of token to that, those could be either democratic voters who don't vote often or Republican voters who don't vote often that, that could be anybody's pile there. But even if you assume that that piles Trump, it just basically matches the democratic total. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, there's, I guess one thing to really look at on election night is, you know, you would expect based on this that more Republicans than Democrats are going to show up, but it would have to be a lot, lot more mm-hmm. to counterbalance this. So that's something that you may be able to get some kind of turnout indication of on election night. My fear with that is that the people who turn out on election day and in most states, not all, but in most states, they're the ones who get their ballots counted first. <laughs> like they're the numbers yeah. that we'll hear about. Um, Which is the reason why we hope it's not much, much, much more Republican. Mm-hmm. The the exception to that rule um, is going to be Florida and uh, Arizona this year. Uh, Arizona expanded the amount of time counties have to pre-process mail ballots from uh, just a few days to two weeks, I believe. And mm-hmm. uh, Florida has... Uh, really kind of revamped their elections process in a way to be slightly less embarrassing to the country this year. Um, If everybody (laughs) remembers, you know, 2016 or even 2018, there were a lot of problems with vote counting in Florida, uh, which seems to be a truism in my life going back to, you know, grade school. There are always problems with getting votes out of Florida. Yeah. Uh, One of the things they've done this year is that they've really ramped up their their mail ballot absentee ballot processing they're hoping to have those numbers reported with the first batch of votes now i think i've heard something similar about north carolina or am i making that up um i think you're making that up but i do believe that they made (laughs) a a pretty good effort um the democratic governor has made some executive action moves to make voting easier um but i believe Republicans in the uh, state house have been able to, to kind of clamp down on that. Uh, let me take a look at that, though. Do you know how Vermont's doing early voting? Um, just looking at that, it looks like we're at 59% so far. Okay. And so how, also, how easy is it to vote there? Very easy, actually. Vermont is um, one of these states that decided to send every registered voter a ballot. So you could choose to use it or not. There's also early voting. There's been early voting for a few weeks now at our town office here, for instance. So there's several ways to get in and do it. Okay. Uh, Yeah, in fact... uh... North Carolina is having a bit of a battle over something called ballot curing, which is where they basically just hold on to the ballots for a long time to make sure everything's okay and then give you time to fix it. And um, either because of political pressure or because they're understaffed and underfunded, you can take your pick on the reasons there. Um, They're leaving very little time for people to like fix mistakes in their ballot and their signatures and whatnot. they haven't even sent announcements out to people yet to let them know. So, you know, they may get that with just a couple days to go before the election and all that. Uh, looks like there might be a lot of a lot of problems in North Carolina. So Florida is really going to be the one to keep an eye on on election night, like always. Yeah, Florida and Arizona, I, I think together will kind of tell you how the swing states are going to go, because if 
if Biden's able to pull out a win in those two, it almost doesn't matter what the other ones do. Um, but also, if Biden's able to pull out a win in those two, it definitely means that the rest of them are on the table. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to put together a Trump successful map that doesn't include Florida, and especially it doesn't include Florida and Arizona. Mm -hmm. Have you um, played around with 538's new tool? I haven't. So they have a wonderful little uh, kind of projected map to show you who gets what electoral votes. And then on ones that are, you know, close enough, if your dude has at least, you know, say a 10% shot of winning the state, you can, you know, keep clicking on it until it goes into your column. And then it adjusts the rest of the map based on kind of what it imagines would happen in the other states if this one went like this. And you can kind of piece together which states you want going to who and see. Right what happens with the rest of it, it's really good. That's what I'd heard. It sounds interesting. And, and I mean, basically, this is what shafted us <laughs> in 2016, was that when you saw one of those Midwest states going, you really knew that the others were dicey as well, because mm -hmm. of I, similar characteristics. There was, I was playing around with it the other day, um, and I can't remember what was the only state I couldn't get to flip eventually. I think it was one of the Dakotas. Um, but yeah, by by kind of chaining Biden wins in swing states, which made other states closer and able to flip them to Biden, I made some ridiculous map. And I think the only one that I couldn't get to go away from the Republicans by the end was, yeah, like, I want to say it was... South Dakota or North Dakota? What North Dakota? Yeah. Um, pause for a quick fun Florida fact. I saw this the other day that since 1992, there have been a total of 51 million votes for president cast in Florida, right? If you add up all the elections, mm -hmm. the difference between the two parties is only 20,000 votes. Holy <laughs> cow. 51 million. Now, obviously, some years had much bigger margins than others, but... Yeah, but when you look at it overall, that's incredible. Florida is just perennially right on the edge there. It also makes it stick out quite a bit in terms of southern states. Like, that is not necessarily uh, the same reputation that, say, Alabama right next door has. Right. Or other states which have actually flipped, like Virginia is a blue state now. Yeah. It's not like Florida is purpling and turning blue. Florida is just sitting on the seesaw forever. That is, that's crazy to me. Such a ridiculous low, like, margin between the two of them. Yeah. Well. All right. Uh, I guess we'll we'll move on to the, the final debate. Um, it was a very different sort of affair I, I think would be the best way to say that what do you uh, take away from that yeah I guess my takeaways were that it it definitely felt different um, as a as a partisan myself <laughs> I was a little you know I was not as happy to find Trump more coherent <laughs> And I also thought Biden seemed a little, little more meandering. Mm -hmm. Although he got 
better as it went on and Trump got worse as it went on, which, you know, is maybe good. But I think overall my bottom line feeling is that it doesn't really like the thing it could have changed is if you were leaning toward Trump and then after that first debate, you were like, wow, I'm really not sure. The second debate might have brought you back. I don't think it flipped anyone. I don't think it took anybody who had been feeling good about Biden and gave them cause for doubt. You know, I don't expect it to lead to big shifts. In the instant polls, the uh, the uh, numbers were exactly the same afterwards, like exactly. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen that kind of like <laughs> on the flat line. <laughs> um, you're right that that Trump was less combative. He was more focused on this. Um, Politico led with the headline afterwards that uh, Republicans or GOP hopes Trump stopped the bleeding. Basically, um, right. they're trying to save the Senate majority. Uh, and Trump actually talked about that on a campaign call today. Um, that it's going to be, he says it's going to be very tough for Republicans to keep the Senate in remarks that were theoretically supposed to be secret. Um, well, not secret, but <laughs> that, on, only up to the fundraisers. He told me on Thursday night that they were going to flip the House. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, there's a Dan Hey, here. guys. What's yes. going on? Made it. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, don't go to my local store at the moment. It is uh, very crazy. You know, typical Saturday, unfortunately, but... That's was it a Costco? No, no, it was a Fred Meyer. Oh, okay. Costco's actually... Oh, oh no. Did I still there? Yeah, yeah, you're still there. Costco's actually been pretty efficient when I've had to go there over this whole pandemic period. But, uh, yeah, the Fred Meyer's just been a nightmare. We've been mostly shopping at Trader Joe's, at least for food. Uh, and the one near us is a pretty well-oiled system where everybody kind of lines up with carts and they let 10 people into the store at a time and whatnot. Oh, yeah, that's ours, too. It's great. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Chris, uh, excuse me, it was not North Dakota. That was the only state I couldn't get to flip. It is Wyoming. Mm. Uh, through chaining other state wins, I can get to a map where everything is blue except for Nebraska's third district and the state of Wyoming. That's that's a hell of a turnout, but yeah. <laughs> uh, this had, so it, it ties back to uh, we were talking just a little bit ago about the election forecast, and five thirty eight has a new tool where you can um, kind of assign who wins the swing states so long as they have a, a good enough chance at doing it, and then it rejiggers the map uh, to reflect what it thinks would happen if the candidate were say winning this state or whatnot, and through through chaining from swing states on down. Uh, throughout it, I can eventually get to a uh, a map that gives Biden 491 electoral votes. Um, for sure, has him favored in you know every other state, and then still gives Trump a 84% chance of winning Wyoming's three electoral votes and one of the congressional district electoral votes in Nebraska. If we're you know having fun. Sounds fun to me. Give him a Mondale in reverse. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had initially thought that it was North Dakota. That was the last state to flip, but that is incorrect. Um, we were just talking about the debate. Uh, both of us thought that Trump was much more coherent. Um, 
Chris thought that Biden was a little bit less coherent, but he got better as it went on. I, I think I largely agree with that. Um, there were some, some things that caught me, though. Um, and one of them you've actually put me quite at ease with. Um, but Biden, during the debate, mentioned that um, if you meet the category or if you meet the income requirements for Medicare, but that you don't have or Medicaid, but you don't have the funds for it, uh, which struck me as a little bit weird because Medicaid doesn't actually cost anything um, that he would you would qualify for the public option. You would join up with that. Um, you've since laid out what the actual plan is. Do you want to right. mention that a little bit? Because that really freaked me out. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He did a. I did. I. He actually did this. I think at other debates as well. He's had done a lousy job of explaining how his public option works. I mean, basically, it's what you'd expect a public option to be. It's a publicly available health care plan that um, taxpayers or really Americans of any income level can buy into. Uh, I believe they have their premiums scaled according to income, at least if it's following the uh, Center for American Progress plan, which I would expect it is pretty much every Democrat except uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and maybe John Delaney on the right were all aboard with. Uh, but yeah, it's scaled scaled premiums to income level to buy into the public option. So right. you pay for you know, pay for a plan the way you would for any other private plan on the exchange. But what Biden also has is this plan to address people in you know states with Republican governors who have well Republican governors or Republican legislators that have uh, for reasons basically of spite because it costs them nothing refused to accept the Medicaid expansion, which is, of course, the health, uh, public health insurance plan that the government makes available for the indigent, but it's managed by the states. And the Supreme Court basically gave states the ability to opt out of that without any penalty, which ACA would have imposed on them. Uh, but, you know, John Roberts splitting the baby and being kind of the sanctimonious uh, prick that he can be sometimes decided that he wasn't going to compel states to or allow the the law to compel states to participate in it so now we've got a number of places that have you know backed out or refused and so what biden's plan does is if somebody would qualify for medicaid under the expansion which is up to 138 percent of the federal poverty level uh they can just buy into the public option for free no premium, which, I mean, great. You know, that's, you know, one more option that's available. Uh, I'm not sure how the public option is going to be comparing to Medicaid. I haven't looked too much into the details of, you know, what's covered and what what uh, co-insurances are required and other things like that. You know, Medicaid, of course, is fantastic if you can find a provider that will accept it. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I would think the public option would be at least a little bit more widely accepted than Medicaid itself. Why, um, just on a, a personal note, why is nobody trying to resurrect Ken, uh, Ted Kennedy's 06 Medicare for All bill? I loved the shit out of that bill. Absolutely loved it. Um, now, I, I don't remember a whole lot. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so it, it was essentially, and my favorite plan of the primary, just to get this up 
out out front uh, was Buttigieg's Medicare for all who want it. If you want to buy into Medicare, no questions asked. We'll take you. Let anybody who wants to just buy into it. And if you don't want to, don't. Totally, totally cool with me. The 2006 uh, Medicare for all bill established a Medicare for all fund paid for out of taxpayer money. Any American who wanted to could buy into Medicare. It expressly, like in the first page of the bill, kept private insurance for anybody who wanted to. You kept a right to get your own insurance paid for through your own pocket, um, while also acknowledging that Medicare would eventually, you know, just by default kind of replace those as more and more people signed on to it. Um, it, it was, and still remains in, in my eye, the perfect implementation of Medicare for all. And I just, it's, it seems like such a no-brainer for me. Just open up Medicare for anybody who wants to buy in, and if they don't want to buy in, cool. I, I don't see why this is such a, a weird fight. I, the public option is great, but I wish the public option were buy into Medicare. Yeah, I mean... I think, yeah, that's been sitting there for a while now, and it makes a great deal of sense. I mean, the one, you, you'd have to change a little bit some of the coverages of Medicare and the way Medicare works, but yeah, I mean, that, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, I I always loved that bill. It was the, kind of the, the gold standard of progressive health reform when I was, you know, in college and whatnot, a, a fairly young man, but I just, I don't see why this is so hard. I don't see why, you know, Warren's big problem was getting out into the weeds over how we were going to pay for these sorts of things. The, the Her big frame... problem was that she told the truth about yeah, how yeah. it would have to work. Exactly. <laughs> but I mean, the, the framework for all this is already out there in legislative language. I mean, sure, they'd have to dust it off and update it. Things aren't the same as they were in 2006. Some things work a little differently now, but the basics are all already there if you want to talk about how you're going to pay for it point to the bill it's got it all laid out um i i spend a lot of time reading and showing people that bill during the primary just because the uh you know medicare for all meaning the abolishment of private insurance really stuck in my craw because that is not what medicare for all used to be <laughs> until about two years ago so I, I spent a lot of time getting people familiar with the bill during primary season. Um, sure. I, I think it's a no-brainer. And especially, you know, maybe not the country at large, but Democrats definitely have some warm and fuzzies for Ted Kennedy still. I, I think it would be a, a wonderful tribute. Just resurrect his bill. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, let's see. We talked about early voting numbers. We talked a little bit about the debate. Not much about substance because... Frankly, it didn't matter. As Chris touched on, the numbers after and before the debate were exactly the same. Uh, yeah. Nobody's mind changed. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I would have liked to see him a little crisper, a little more pushing back against just the constant absurdity from Trump. But ultimately, I don't think it changes anything. And not changing anything when you're 10 points ahead and 50 million votes have already been cast. Mm-hmm. It's good if you're Biden. Yeah. yeah. Trump needs to change his trajectory of the race. Biden is cool with just sitting back and letting it do its thing. I mean, we're, we're on track now that it's almost as if Biden's going to have his entire margin locked in before we even get to election day. 
it's so wild in some of these states. I mean, that's at least based on, you know, the way things are going so far. We're at, what, 45% of total uh, total 2016 turnout or getting very close to it. Yeah. And it wildly, wildly disproportionately Democrat pretty much everywhere. You know, the Republicans are counting on this election day turnout. And if it doesn't manifest, if, you know, people are, you know, disheartened because it seems like Trump's going to lose, if uh, mm. COVID is a major fear, and I think it probably should be, they're just not going to get the chance to do it. Uh, and, and great, you know, let them get buried. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Let me circle back around to a same, kind of a same hypothetical I posited to Chris earlier. I'll, I'll throw it at you now. The, the breakdown in the early vote was like 45% Democrat, 25% Republican, and 30%, you know, independent, no party affiliation. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Trump's campaign kind of hinges on what he wants to do with uh, unlikely voters, getting those voters who don't normally come out to the polls, out to the polls. Those people are likely to be independents or no party affiliation. They're not super tied into the political process or anything like that. Is there any chance at all that those high no party affiliation uh, votes are potentially Trump votes? It doesn't feel like it to me. I mean, what you what kind of correlates with that a little bit, and I think it's either you or Chris that shared something to that effect this week about how high youth vote turnout has been yeah. relative to 2016 and previous elections. That is also an enormous contingent of not partisan affiliated voters, but generally inclined to vote left wing voters. Mm -hmm. You know, those voters under 30 that just don't, you know, for whatever reason, uh, well, uh, you know, possibly um, residual effects from the 2016 and 2020 primaries just don't prefer to identify as Democrats, but generally down the line have a lot of left-leaning beliefs and don't want to see Trump continue to be president. So at least my gut is that, you know, since that level, that demographic is turning out at such a high rate, at least higher than it has before, and that's probably driving a lot of what's happening with the uh, non-party affiliated votes so far. Mm -hmm. So I don't think Trump is getting a lot of boost out of that right now. Yeah, that was kind of my same feeling. Um, in terms of getting out that vote, I guess that brings us up to our, our next topic here. Obama has, has re-entered the fray. He's held uh, two rallies now. One uh, just finished a little while ago today. Uh, mostly drive-in rallies, having people you know drive into big fields, I guess, in their cars. Uh, Obama on the stage talking to everybody. So there's been a lot of honking in the background instead of clapping. It's been a little <laughs> bit weird, uh, but really, really good. Uh, Obama definitely seems to enjoy being out there, and he's having a lot of fun ripping into Trump. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah. I mean, hey, I, have you watched any of them? I have not. Oh, you really I should. Really got to go find some of these. It, it is Obama... I wouldn't say it's peak Obama. It's not like Obama at his most inspirational, but it's definitely Obama at his most fun. He's he's mm -hmm. out there having jokes. Um, 
talking about, you know, a secret Chinese bank account. Imagine that. You know what Fox <laughs> News would have done if I had a secret Chinese bank account? They would have been calling me Beijing Barry. Exactly. It, He's it, not yeah. wrong. It's been so much fun to see him out there. Um, and he, he looks so jazzed for it. He's really getting into it. Yeah, it's a fun thing to do. And tearing Trump apart has got to be pretty satisfying. Yeah. I mean, he actually, for um, obviously no reason of reciprocity, <laughs> did a fairly conventional ex-president not commenting a lot on the current president thing for most of the last four years. So mm-hmm. he deserves to jump in there now. Exactly. He's been holding it back. Yeah. Uh, rip. They So they've deployed him. His first rally was in Pennsylvania. His second rally was in Florida. Um, I wonder how long before they send him to North Carolina or Georgia. Oh, yeah. I think those that are two states be, where he could help a lot. That would be huge. And since, of course, Senate race is there, I'd really like to see him hitting the gas. Speaking of South Senate Carolina races too. where Obama could help, I, I think Mississippi is is a good place to send him. I think Ashley sure. can get over the finish line before Biden can. Yep. Um, so I don't know if the campaign wants to waste Obama on a rally that's going to help the Senate, but not the president. But frankly, I don't see a reason not to. And I, I really do think Obama might push SB over the finish line. That that race is a sleeper. Um, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm getting good feelings about it. Yeah. Turbocharge the black turnout. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Turbocharge the black turnout with a candidate who, while being black, also tends to play extremely well with with white Mississippians. He's he's always SB has always exceeded your typical Democratic vote with white Mississippians, mm-hmm. sometimes by enormous margins. I I mean, he got 33 percent of the white vote one year. Uh, yeah, he's he's very well respected kind of across the aisle. Uh, I don't think there's any chance Biden carries Mississippi, but I, I do think with a little help, we could push SB over the finish line over there. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm for it. Um, speaking of the, the other Senate story, have you guys seen what's uh, been happening with Mark Kelly out there? Um, what's going on with Mark Kelly? I've always assumed good news is no, no news is good news there. Um, so... <laughs> This may or may not be real. Let me start off with that. Um, in fact, the Republicans were told it was not real, uh, but they decided to run with it anyway. Uh, there was an old yearbook from Mark Kelly, uh, yeah. Mark Kelly's years in school, that has a picture of somebody who Republicans are saying is Mark Kelly, dressed up as Hitler at like a costume ball. Uh, the Kelly campaign says it's not him. Kelly's classmates say it's not him. Uh, Republicans say it's him, and they're they're running ads with it now. Well, they would know. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. That just dropped the other day. Uh, I a I, I'm at this point. I'm pretty sure it's not Kelly. It does look a lot like him. Like just just to be fair, uh, the guy has the same basic features uh, as Kelly does, and you could totally imagine if you rewind 50 years. Like, this this is what was going down. But there's enough of his classmates uh, saying that it wasn't him that I, I feel pretty comfortable saying it's not him. And even if it were, like, two-thirds of the vote is already in in Arizona, maybe even three-quarters at this point. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know how much it actually changed the race. Yeah. Huh. 
Okay. Well, I mean, it's good that they're that desperate, honestly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let them flounder. Uh, did was... you pull up the picture yet? Yeah, yeah, just took a look. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I guess we'll talk about the coronavirus a little bit here before we move on to uh, the Supreme Court. Chris, you've been tracking the numbers pretty closely. Yeah. So, I, I mean, for instance, the numbers that came in yesterday and today will probably be very similar are right at our peak from the summer peak. And we're clearly still on an upward swing at this point. So this, this is going to get nastier. Yeah, that's actually probably scaring me more than anything relating to the election, just how bad that yeah. seems to be getting. Yeah, you know, not just here in America either, but also Europe. It's really on an upswing. I was seeing something like what was it twenty thousand cases or something in Belgium a day this week? Uh big spikes in France, Germany. Uh you know, places that I think the feeling had been they were handling it relatively well, at least Germany, maybe fr not France so well, but yeah, and suddenly another winter spike, you know, not good, really no. not good. The and EU honestly, has actually surpassed the U.S. in cases per capita as of now. What are you saying, Chris, before I interrupted you? Well, I was just going to say, although talking about the EU, you have to think that'll end up here too, right? Because mm -hmm. like when this first started, there were these huge numbers in Europe and people were saying, well, we're doing better here, but based on our behavior, <laughs> there's no indication that we're doing better. Yeah. It probably just hasn't fully caught up here yet. Uh, I think one of the things that has more to do with that than really anything else is people forget how far north a lot of Europe is. Right. Uh, like New York City is roughly, you know, the same longitude as, as Spain. So if you think think about it, like three quarters of that continent are, you know, north of of New York. They're they're getting into their cold season. Everybody's indoors. Yeah. Everybody's so this you know, is like us in spaces. weeks or month. Exactly. You know, once the weather starts getting chillier here. And it's, you know, basically already there. I saw frost in some cars the other day coming home from work at like 1.30 in the morning. Uh, you're going to see the same thing here. I mean, you know, just to put this in, in another perspective here, Copenhagen, Denmark is just a couple hundred miles south of the southern tip of Denmark, or uh, yeah. of Greenland, excuse me, longitudinally. It's, it would be in the middle of the Hudson Bay if you moved it, you know, westwards. So, now these places are pretty far up there. You're not kidding. I mean, I, I that was a fact that just blew my mind. New York is actually, yeah, just a shade north of Madrid. Yeah. Wow. That blows my mind. Yeah. So <laughs> all these all these major cities of of Europe or whatnot are, are quite far north. London's north of the the uh, U.S. Canadian border uh, mm -hmm. in Washington there. You know, Stockholm, Sweden is roughly in line with uh, Juneau, Alaska. <laughs> like, yeah. these places are, are way up there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, 
and much of Europe, especially in Austria and Germany, is, is mountainous. It's at elevation. Um, these are places where it's getting cold. We are looking at our future, basically. <laughs> this is going to be us in, you know, a month. Yeah. Mm. Damn. That's and I guess to be crassly political again, because I just like to be this time of year, <laughs> it probably honestly isn't that great an election issue, given that the election is only a little over a week away and Americans are real chowderheads, especially in the states where they are chowderheads. <laughs> so it probably won't be nasty enough to really scare people away en masse yet. In a month from now, maybe yes, but. Yeah. Uh, speaking of scaring people, the Amy Coney Barrett nomination is on course to <laughs> sail through. Uh, just today, you had Murkowski announce that while she disapproved of this whole process, um, she is voting to confirm because she doesn't hold it against uh, Amy Coney Barrett, which is ridiculous, um, yeah. both as justification and also I, I don't get the not holding it against her. What? What truly, like, acceptable judicial nominee would accept a nomination under these circumstances? Like, I think that's I, exactly it. Yeah, yeah, I do definitely hold this against her. If she were any sort of, like, actual functioning legal mind who, who understood the values of the institution and the public trust in them, you have to turn it down. You have to say, you know, if you win, give me the nomination in the lame duck. Not now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's appalling, and yeah, I I thought better of her. I really did. Yeah, I'm I'm not gonna miss her so much when like other Dan Sullivan or whoever ends up primarying her in two years. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this seems like a kind of crass, you know, desperate political move. She's you know, sailed too far against Trump, so now she has to come back around and try and win Republicans back over again. It's gross. She's also in very much a zero-sum game um, yeah. on that. The things she does to ameliorate GOP voters are directly driving other voters away from her, and she's yep. traditionally relied on those voters. I mean, this is a woman who won re-election after losing the Republican primary, so she... She is very much not uh, not a base Republican, um, yeah. and she's, so she's losing that ability. Similar to the trap Susan Collins has caught herself in. Yeah, yeah, and that's finally about to spring on her. I mean, unfortunately, Alaska's probably not a state where Elisa Murakowski can really lose in a general election, but in a primary, she is absolutely vulnerable. I, I do actually think there's a way she loses in Alaska. I don't know if it's uh, expected or anything, but I... I mean, I, if you've got a situation where, yeah, she's running, she loses the primary, and the Democrats are running a candidate like, again, Mark Begich or something like that, then, yeah, then maybe. Like, if she got in a pincher between other Republican candidate and a, you know, Mark Begich, Tony Knowles caliber candidate, then yeah, maybe she'd lose. But I mean, even 2010, she wants to write in. That's, that shouldn't be possible. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, speaking of Knowles, he actually endorsed the other day 
Um, Did he? Yeah, I saw a news article about Tony Knowles for the first time since, uh, God, was it the first year of the... Oh, no, no, no. He was in the news a lot at the start of uh, the Trump um, administration. He led that rebellion of the National Parks Advisory Board where they all resigned in mass. He was their spokesman for that. Yeah, there was, there was a good week-long cycle where he was in the news, like, once a day or so. Um, but, yeah, he he came out and, you know, endorsed the Democratic slate, as you would expect. Yeah, yeah, okay. Mm. But, you know, fair. <laughs> I mean, uh, he's also got to be something like 70, maybe 80. Oh, yeah, he's so, getting up there. That feels so weird. <laughs> he, he was the governor I grew up with, so... He was governor when I came to the state. Uh, and then he his campaign for... I think it was his campaign to return to the governor's mansion was the second campaign that I ever worked. The first one was Fran Ulmer's campaign to seat him. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, okay, yeah, he is almost 80. Okay. Oh, Jesus Damn. Christ. We're all getting old, man. Yeah, I'm not comfortable <laughs> with my mortality right now. Uh-huh. Um, I guess we'll, uh, I forgot to mention this during the coronavirus segment, but for a little local flair on that, Multnomah was just placed back on the state watch list. Um, the, one of the other counties that had been placed back on the watch list actually was required to go back to a full blown lockdown, uh, uh, about a month and a half ago. They've, they've now progressed back to phase one opening, but, uh, Cases are going the wrong direction in Oregon. We just had our all-time high in terms of new cases uh, yesterday. Uh, we're 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 kind of kind of curious about whether another lockdown is coming in Multnomah. Just want to throw that out there. Oh. Uh, all right, we covered Corona. We covered Supreme Court nominations. Is there anything local going on you want to talk about? Not that's really jumping out at me. Even the ballot initiatives this year are pretty low-key up here in Washington. It's really all on... I mean, there's a few seats that I think there's going to be pushes for um, in the legislature on the margin, but Democrats already blew everything out of the water back in 2018 here on the Washington side of the border. Um yeah, I can't, you know, lo- everything's kind of getting subsumed into this final Scaramucci push for the uh, election. <laughs> uh, okay, that brings us to Chris, who definitely does have a local story I want to talk about. Uh, one of the things we learned this week was that Bernie Sanders wants to be labor secretary uh, under the Biden administration, which... I'm actually all for it. I think that would be a wonderful position for him. Uh, but we talked a little bit in the group, and I want to talk a little bit now about how exactly the Senate replacement procedures would go, because that's, depending on our margin in the Senate, that's probably the biggest roadblock to a Labor Secretary Bernie Sanders happening. You want to kind of lay out the secession rules for us from Vermont? Yeah, so the governor does appoint, but the appointment is met very soon thereafter by a special election to fill the seat. So, you know, it's consciously temporary. So 
And when I say very soon, it depends when exactly you do it, but it could be like as early as February and not later than April. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be that long, but um, the kind of, I think the nightmare scenario is the one that um, Dan had pegged in chat earlier in the week, which is if yeah, Phil Scott appointed himself, <laughs> mm -hmm. that is probably a seat he could hold, which is not what we would want. I mean, he doesn't even have to necessarily appoint himself. He could run in the special, um, in the and, special and, right. and not have to leave the governor's mansion unless he wins, correct? Like, he wouldn't have to resign right. the governorship to Correct. run for the Senate. So if he just nominates a seat warmer, to sit in there for a few months, and then decides to jump into the Senate race, uh, you have an extremely popular Republican governor in one of the most Democratic states in the nation. Uh, and that, that terrifies me if he wants to run for Senate. Because <laughs> I, I do believe he could hold that Senate seat. I, I think you're you're absolutely right on that. I think he could hold it. And that's just not a seat I want to lose. Vermont should not have a Republican senator, not with the politics of that state. But it's so weird. Yeah. Like both. And it would be very much a Susan Collins situation, you know, where he would often say things that would sound reasonable, but when push came to shove. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I uh, mean, even, even if we kept to the seat, having it vacant or at least having it occupied by a Republican leaning independent or even Republican for, you know, say through April, that's a lot of very crucial, crucial legislating time for the Biden yeah. administration. And I mean, they're going to get things rolling on, you know, COVID relief, uh, statehood for DC, uh, HR, HR one, all that kind of stuff you need as many senators as you can to get it pushed through. The uh, the other kind of big thing with that that I, I worry about is you mentioned the timing of the resignation is important for when the special election is. If it's time to have the earlier special election, that gives one less Democratic seat during the lame duck where they can, you know, play around with shit. Um, so I'd prefer the later resignation, but then that sets you up mm -hmm. for the even later special election. Yeah. Right. What's the Vermont legislature divided like? Um, it is pretty overwhelmingly Democrat now. It was, it was already a majority of both houses, but then in the midterms, we actually got a super majority of both houses. And there are even a few things that they've overridden the governor on recently. Do you think there's an appetite to change the way that they handle vacancies? You know, I haven't heard it discussed at all. And I don't know if it would be, uh, it might be constitutional, like it might not be something the legislature could do. Okay. I or mean, at least not do. Super majority, you could change the constitution. <laughs> at least in most states. I don't know how that works in Vermont. Right. But yeah. with two thirds of the legislature, you could pass a constitutional amendment in most states. Uh, the, the only reason I ask is because I believe it was the legislature in Massachusetts did exactly that when they had a Republican governor were, uh, were unhappy with the governor against selection powers and so changed their, uh, their vacancy laws uh, right before, I believe it was Kerry resigned to go yep. into the, uh, the Obama cabinet. Well, I think they changed it back when Kerry was running for president, I want to say. You know, when Mitt, when Mitt Romney was governor. Okay. And yep. then, 
Yeah, I think there was uh, that ended up being the rules that stayed in effect when Ted Kennedy died, and yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean that certainly, if the rules need to be tweaked, we've got a legislature that can do that and could override the governor's veto because yeah, I see that even you've got just six Republicans in your Senate. <laughs> That's amazing to me. Wow. It's almost Hawaii levels. Yeah, yeah. That For a while, really Hawaii had one Republican state senator. One. He was he was ranking member on every committee. He was all positions in the GOP like leadership. He was the only Republican state senator. Okay, so getting back to a second ago, Vermont mm -hmm. is weird. <laughs> no. This may surprise no. you. <laughs> so the process must be initiated by a Senate that has been elected in an off year. <laughs> that oh. is an election that does not coincide with the election of the U.S. president. An amendment must originate in the Senate and be approved by a two-thirds vote. It must then receive a majority vote in the House. Then, after a newly elected legislature is seated, <laughs> the amendment must receive a majority vote in each chamber. First in the Senate, then in the House. Okay, the so it's not something they could do. Then be presented to the voters as a referendum and receive a majority of the votes cast. Okay. So you this can't change like the Constitution. That is a three election process? This is, Am I correct in that? It is a three election process. It's like legislature must overwhelmingly pass it, new legislature must then run. <laughs> knowing that they have to look at it and overwhelmingly pass it, then it goes to the voters. That hmm. is insane. But also, I very much guess I expect something like that from Vermont. All right. Uh, I think we're going to call it here. We have 10 days till the election. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. 10 days till the election. We will have one more episode before Election Day. Hmm. Hope we all get through it together, guys. Yeah. White knuckle. All right. Have a good one. All right. Good night, everyone. Bye.